Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 11. In this chapter, we get to hear from Zophar, the Namathite. He speaks last of the three friends, which may mean that he was the youngest, or it may mean that he is the least renowned as a wise man. Of course, we can't be sure. He is certainly the least impressive of Job's friends. Francis Anderson says, The Namathite is the least engaging of Job's three friends. There is not a breath of compassion in his speech. Zophar's wisdom is a bloodless retreat into theory. It is very proper, theologically familiar, and unobjectionable. But it is flat beer compared with Job's seismic sincerity. So we'll mark Francis Anderson down as unimpressed with Zophar, and I think for good reason. Zophar's basic argument in the speech is that God is inscrutable, and man is abominable, and therefore this whole conversation is pointless. He almost comes across as a deist. He basically suggests that God has designed the universe like a moral machine. It has been programmed to punish evil and to reward good, and its workings are too complicated for any human being to understand. Therefore, If the machine hands out suffering, then you can be sure that you have done something to deserve it. You might not understand it, but the machine is always correct. And therefore, all of this talk about appealing to the creator is inappropriate and impertinent. It'd be like an ant appealing to the designer of his ant habitat about the shape of the rocks or the depth of the sand. Ants are too stupid to even communicate with their maker, and by and large, so are we. So suck it up, buttercup, and just do what you need to do to appease the program. That is the cold, bloodless counsel of Brother Zophar. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. In verses 2 to 3, Zophar basically accuses Job of being a windbag or a babbler. He's talking in circles and nothing he says has any real substance to it. Well, of course, to a certain extent, he is correct. We've talked about this already many times. Job is talking in circles. He is trying on one idea and chasing it down, but then inevitably he hits a brick wall and turns around and tries something else. He's attempting to think his way out of an impossible dilemma. He's like a kid in school trying to solve an equation without all the necessary values. 
Every time he runs the equation, he gets an answer he knows cannot be true, but he can't give up. He won't give up until he finds the truth. So far, doesn't seem to understand that. He doesn't see this as wrestling in faith. He sees this as spewing sin and stupid into the air, and he is determined to put a stop to it. In verse 4, he rebukes Job for believing that his ways are pure. And again, he is on reasonably solid ground here. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. That's exactly what Zophar says here to Job. You think that your ways are pure. Well, bully for you. Everyone thinks their ways are pure, but that doesn't make it so. Only God can truly assess such things, and his judgments are the only ones that matter. Well, again, that is true. But there is more going on here than Zophar can see. The reader knows that God has weighed Job and found him blameless. At the end of chapter 2, the reader was told, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Despite everything that had happened, despite even his wife telling him to curse God and die, even still, Job did not sin with his lips. He was blameless in chapter 1, and here we're told in chapter 2, he hasn't done anything to change that. So Zophar is wrong. Zophar is saying, that Job thinks he is blameless, but the facts on the ground prove otherwise. The facts on the ground, the fact of Job's suffering, proves that God has judged Job and found him wanting. Zophar sees the universe like a moral machine. It has been programmed to hand out rewards and punishments according to a perfect, though inscrutable, formula. Arguing with the formula is like arguing with gravity. Don't be stupid, Zophar says. Only drunk people and stupid people argue with gravity. Stay in your lane, Job, and do what you need to do to get your blessings back. In verse 7, he continues down this line of reasoning. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born of a man. So again, Zophar has no interest in trying to understand the universe. The universe is a big machine that has been designed by an unapproachable and ultimately unknowable God. Just do what you need to do to make the machine work for you. Don't try and understand it. That's a fool's errand. I appreciate the words used by Tremper Longman III here. He says, according to Zophar, God is ineffable and mysterious. That's a good word there, ineffable. It means too great or extreme to be understood or described or even uttered. The online dictionary provides a fascinating example to help us understand the word. They refer to the ineffable Hebrew name that Gentiles write as Jehovah. And they're referring there to the Jewish custom of not writing out the name for God, Jehovah or Yahweh. 
many Jews won't even write the word God, as in G-O-D. When I was taking Hebrew in seminary, the course was cross-listed with the university. So several Jewish students took the class, thinking that ancient Hebrew was similar enough to modern Hebrew to make for an easy A. Most of them dropped the course after a couple of weeks. But in my interactions with those students, I many times observed them writing in their notebooks G dash or underscore D. And never, ever would they write out Yahweh, as in Y-A-H-W-E-H, or Jehovah, J-E-H-O-V-A-H. To them, God was ultimately inscrutable and his name and identity ineffable. Now, out of respect for our Jewish friends, many English translations of the Bible follow this custom. Whenever the Hebrew text has the name Yahweh, it is translated into English as Lord using all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Old Testament scholar J. Alec Machir thinks this is a serious error. The Bible tells us that God invited his people to use his personal name and even explained to them what it meant in Exodus 3.15. Machir says here, a totally false sense of reverence later said, The name is too holy for us to use. And the custom was introduced of representing it as the Lord. No, no, he has granted us the privilege and we should learn, belatedly, to live in the benefit of it. Closed quote. I tend to agree. The Bible progressively reveals God to us, climaxing, of course, in the perfect revelation of God through Christ. So Christians of all people should be able to use the name of God because we know exactly what it means. It means Jesus. It means that Zophar is wrong. God isn't inscrutable. He isn't unknowable. He isn't ineffable. No. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Thanks be to God. But of course, Zophar isn't there yet. He isn't anywhere close to there yet. He thinks of God as an unknowable clockmaker. And the only thing Job should be concerned with is doing what the clock rewards. The clock rewards repentance. So get your face down in the dust. Stop talking about the purity of your ways and start doing what the clock recognizes and rewards. Verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then... You will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You'll forget your misery. You'll remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. So, confess, repent, rise, and be blessed. That is the mechanical, bloodless, and heartless counsel 
of Brother Zophar. And he, more than anyone, reminds us that wisdom has its limitations. Is it true that the universe tends to reward wise behavior and punish foolish behavior? Absolutely. If you don't believe that, just go to YouTube and type in people doing stupid things, and you'll be able to watch the universe punishing people doing stupid things. There, there is a sort of moral law, but it is a law that is opposed in a universe that has been corrupted and cursed by the fall. The universe is groaning. The spiritual realm is a battlefield, and God is working purposes of redemption. Those three facts have not been considered by Zophar, but they hold the key to understanding all that has been happening in the life of Job. Zophar's speech reminds us that bad theology results in poor comfort for suffering men and women. It reminds us that a failure to know the world, to know yourself, and to know God results in an inability to minister to hurting people. And most of all, Zophar's speech makes us glad for Jesus Christ. For truly, before Christ, the most privileged among us saw God as though through a veil— but now in Christ, the veil has been removed, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror, are being transformed by one degree of glory to the next into the same image. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 